Today on the WSJ Media Mix podcast, we're joined by advertising editor Suzanne Vernitza to talk about the issue of transparency in the ad business. Then Jack and I break down some of the biggest media stories of the year. Welcome to the WSJ Media Mix podcast, bringing you interviews and analysis with people that matter in the fast-changing media business. Hello and welcome to this special holiday Last of 2016 edition of the WSJ Media Mix podcast. I'm Stephen Perlberg. I'm here with my partner in crime, Jack Marshall. Jack, what's up? <laughs> I'm doing good, Steve. So we're going to, uh, a little later in the show, recap some of the biggest stories of the year, talk about sort of our, our forward-looking uh, themes for next year. Um, but first, we're joined in studio once again by advertising editor Suzanne Vernitza. She, uh, she, she's been following some of the biggest ad stories of the year, so we're going we're gonna to chat about that. Suzanne, thanks for coming in. Thanks for having me. So one of the big themes that we really wanted to discuss is this issue of transparency in the advertising world. And this has sort of popped up a number of different times throughout the year through different stories. But you've kind of been covering this. And maybe w- let's sort of step back and, and assess what the advertising landscape looks like now in terms of this general sense of mistrust between um, clients and their agencies and, and sort of how, how we got here. Well, I think it goes far beyond clients and agencies. Um, if you're a marketer, you should be looking over your back and skeptical to every degree. There is a completely broken system in the marketing sector right now. And I think that's seeping its way into everything from the agency relationship with the marketer to the digital ecosystem that's out there to the measurement systems that are out there to sort of prove your worth. So I think it's a broader issue that's this overhang on the business. I mean, I wouldn't want to be a CMO today. Let's put it that way. What do you think the breakdown, like the breakdown, is like? What? How did we sort of get to a place where there is kind of like that tension or mistrust? Um, is it sort of just the changing kind of media landscape that we live in has created so many different? places for there to be confusion and tension? I think that's half the problem. I think we've changed so rapidly. I mean, even though we've been talking about digital and the rise of the digital, in order to keep up with these, the ad companies have expanded aggressively into all these new spaces, as well as different media companies have popped up. And I think everybody's been in this race to catch up with where the consumer has been. And in doing so, there's very it's very unclear um, how you're reaching them, are you reaching them? And I think the systems that should be in place to make sure there's a check system are just not there. And I think it's, um, you know, clearly we haven't had time to address a lot of this, but let's just look at ad fraud. We've been talking about this for five years and it's still going on. Like if anybody was shocked at yesterday's report about the botnets, they're crazy. You've been living under a rock. We've been <laughs> saying this for how long? Like this needs to be fixed and nothing is getting done. You know, there's a committee announced every week, and it's still a complete crap show. Yeah, a committee on, like, when we're going to form another committee. Exactly. And... I mean, could, could you argue it's a similar situation for rebates? I mean, obviously that came to a head this year um, with sort of the ANA probe. But, again, that's sort of something that um, has been sort of a, a little secret in the media industry for the past five years or right. so. Right. Everybody's been talking about it, and I think everybody wants to call it a rebate or a kickback. But it goes far wider than that. It's no one understands how these advertising companies operate or make money. There's no transparency on the way they report their numbers, or at least very little of it. It's very hard for a marketer to even understand how they all work. And, you know, there's no auditing rights. And I think the transparency and the probe that went on by the ANA that clearly found that there was maybe 
major problems is something that's going to take years to, you know, unwind. You know, there's going to be tons of audits, and then we're probably never going to hear what actually happens there. I mean, we'll hear that they got solved, or will they take care of them quietly? The only difference now is we're seeing on the production side there's been some bad behavior, and now the DOJ, the Justice Department, is investigating the agencies in terms of bid rigging. So I think because you have a government agency involved, I think things are going to get cleaned up, fixed, or at least more clarity to situations way quicker than we would have if they hadn't gotten involved. Yeah. So I mean, we, you broke the news about uh, the DOJ uh, investigation looking into possible bid rigging in the, um, per, the basically the making, the production and post-production of commercials. It's a $5 billion industry. Uh, this is sort of... Uh, you know, the, basically what you, what you reported was that um, ad companies were steering business towards their own in-house units as opposed to um, the, the independent companies. Right. And the uh, reason that yeah. that's really bad is because, you know, people are like, well, well of course they would. You know, they they want to keep it inside. But the problem is the agency, the creative firm, is in charge of the bidding process. So you get three bids for a, a particular project. And if you're manipulating or having somebody manipulate those numbers, it seems a little odd in the first place that they would be in included in the bidding process if they had a sister company in there, right? It's definitely something that needs to be looked at. So that's where you're getting into this anti-competitive. That's why the, the government would be involved in that particular instance. But this has gone on for a number of years. I mean, the woman who's investigating this actually sent um, a gray executive, a former gray executive, to jail years ago. I mean, there was kickbacks personally and different things and a bunch of people in the production on the print side of advertising that went to jail. So um, it's not new. I just think, again, these things are coming back because these companies are in a land grab for new revenue streams. They're also forced to, by clients to do things faster and quicker. So therefore, yeah, they're, cutting they're bulking, corners. right? Yeah. They, or they're bulking up on production because their clients are saying we need things faster. So it, it, they're torn between two things here. I mean, clearly, bad behavior aside, bad behavior is bad behavior. But there's probably a reason why they're all in this, besides the fact that they are looking for revenue. Do you think that's going to get more complicated as we see, for example, uh, agency holding companies taking uh, investment ownership stakes in media companies? Completely. It seems to me like there are sort of a growing list of opportunities for that type of behavior to occur. Totally. You wonder if, you know, there's a trust factor that no one seems to understand in this business. Like every company has vendors, but marketing is a little different. The agency relationship with a marketer, it's really just a, cr- a trust relationship. They trust these companies with billions of dollars, right? And it's their friends, their godparents, each other's kids. So when these things can, can happen, there's an underlying of trust that can really fracture this business to a great degree. And I think what we're going to see is that you know, you know, if it goes all the way, do we see it? And this is just me second guessing what's been out there. But, you know, should these companies separate the companies? Because how can you be an agent and also right, if there's no delineation? Exactly. Then, hey. But, you know, lots of them will stand up and say, we're no longer agents. Well, you are an agent on some parts of the business. So they want it both ways. And you know what? The onus really, flaw, you know, falls on the marketer here. Right. Like we always want to point. People always point to the agencies. Oh, the agencies are, you know, crooked or they're not being legit. Or they're, they're not trusting. They're, they're in business to make money. We get it. But also, what about the marketers? You know, how many of them got bonus because they got cheap inventory or asked for free inventory? Well, nothing in life is for free. So start asking questions, get smarter. Things aren't happening at this alarming clip because somebody's not paying attention. If I was a CFO, I'd be all over my marketing department right now. Well, one of the other big sort of trust transparency 
uh, issues that came up this year was when Facebook disclosed that uh, it had been miscounting um, video metrics on, you know, on the platform, and that really caused a, a big stir in the ad world and the media world. And it kind of tapped in, I think, to this general mistrust of, of, of platforms and, and the sort of concern that, um, you know, w- what are people really getting? Um, yeah. Do you think that going forward, like, marketers, agencies are going to be sort of harder on Facebook? Or, or like, where is this going to shake out um, in terms of, you know, this sort of issue of measurement and transparency? Um, when we broke the story about Facebook, you know, overestimating by up to 80%, which is a kind of an alarming number, you know, yeah, it was That's really wrong. That's really <laughs> wrong, right? And now it's been, what, three, three or four different things have come out that they mismeasured, right? People make mistakes, n- no question. But this wasn't people that were calling to say, oh, we found a little mistake. These were angry marketers. The problem with Facebook is they've become so powerful that marketers are afraid to speak about them, right? Like they know they are marketers either, media companies. Media companies, yeah. everyone. It's like no one will call them out, right? We, we, we see this all the time with people that use them from the media side. So I, I do think they're quiet about it. They don't want to publicly. But I'm led to believe that they're definitely, you know, there are a group of marketers who have always been pretty aggressive with Google and Facebook, you know, demanding or holding back money. We've written about instances, and I think we'll probably see more of that. You know, whether it ends up on the front page of the journal or other papers is tougher, and clearly we'll be looking for those stories next year. But you'd have to believe if they've done it once. Like, I just don't understand if you have marketers in a room sitting complaining on background that this is going on. Um, you're the people with the money. Like, yeah, the, you know, it's, it is, this is not a hard issue to solve. It really is not if you think about it. Like, go in and well, let's clean up these systems. Like, demand the transparency. This idea that we're all, every day they're calling for third-party verification. Well, if you don't like the third-party verification, hold back money. Watch how quickly Wall Street forces Facebook to open up its platforms when they miss their earnings. I mean, this is pretty... You know, it's easy to talk about, it and right. I know but they're it's more hard in the work, driver's seat than, than they care than to they realize. Th- right? Yeah. They are in the driver's seat. We've seen them be powerful. I mean, they'll they'll turn around and like stand up and call any TV network like idiots in public, right? I mean, but Facebook, but all Facebook, sudden, yeah. no, right? Yeah, you know, so we'll see what happens, and maybe we'll get some marketers who are finally going to say, you know, let's work together, let's do this openly and fix it, because clearly we, you know, they need digital, they need these systems to work. But, you know, with with what's gone on in Facebook, a measurement, the whole idea that ad fraud has not been cleaned up. And, you know, we have estimates of, what, $7 billion. Like, after yesterday's report on how large that was, that $7 billion is definitely, in my opinion, way underinflated. <laughs> you know, like, it's probably way bigger. You know, so what are you really getting? So, so you mentioned digital there. Just sort of speaking broadly around all of these transparency issues, how much is this sort of a digital problem? Because you've got the TV guys who are saying, oh, you know, this this doesn't happen with uh, with TV. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, is this like a digital problem? I mean, the DOJ thing obviously isn't limited to digital. Right. I don't think it's a digital problem. Like, no one, no one will argue that having Nielsen be the only arbiter of TV ratings and those are not the best way to measure is faulty. But no one can argue that companies like Procter & Gamble and 
tons of others have built billion dollar brands based on TV. It's waning. We know millennials are moving away from it, but clearly, you know, it works. Could it be more efficient? You know, if TV would get its stuff together and bring more targeting to it. And like, we've been talking about targeted TV advertising for a hundred years. Like, they should not be in the shape they're in, right? They have the ability to keep the money to win at this game, especially with the problems that face digital, but they still have not grasped it, right? They're still not moving to a world where you can better target. And I think that's what needs to happen. But it's clearly not a digital only. I do think you'd have to you have to put the emphasis on digital because that's where all the money is going right now. And if you're moving money to digital from another platform, I mean, we saw it this year. There was a lot of marketers that held back pulling money out of TV because they pulled too far. And there's, you know, if, if digital works that amazingly and everybody's investing all this money in it, where are all the earnings reports for a lot of these companies that are showing amazing growth? Because I have, you know, there's not a lot of companies showing amazing growth out there. Right. You know, there's a trickle-down effect that, that it's just not happening. Right. Well, uh, Suze, thanks, thanks as always for coming in and explaining this to us. Um, Jack and I will be back uh, after this break, and we'll be breaking down some of the biggest stories of the year. This message comes from Viking, committed to exploring the world in comfort. Journey through the heart of Europe on an elegant Viking longship with thoughtful service, destination-focused dining, and cultural enrichment on board and on shore. And every Viking voyage is all-inclusive, with no children and no casinos. Discover more at Viking.com. Hi, I'm Paul Vigna. If you do not subscribe to the Money Bee podcast, you are going to feel worse than a short seller on the day of a big rally. Go to iTunes and WSJ.com slash podcasts. You want to sign up for this one. WSJ Podcasts. Listen ambitiously. Now, back to the show. All right, welcome back to the WSJ Media Mix podcast. Jack and I are here. Uh, Jack, we've done this podcast for a long time, but we've never just talked us two. I know it, it's kind of lonely. Uh, yeah, really. If we usually we always have a guest. We have Suze. We have, you know, a media executive, but now it's just us. It's kind of nice. <laughs> kind of nice in here. Um, so we we wanted to break down uh, as you go into the new year some of the some of the biggest stories of the year, um, and then kind of think about themes for next year. So, as Jack, what, like, what were some of your not to say like biggest stories, but sort of most impactful or like that really tapped into sort of like the themes and media that we've been talking about on the podcast for the past few months. Yeah, well, I think obviously what we just discussed with Suze was pretty interesting. There was this theme of transparency that feels like has sort of permeated the industry this year. And that has touched sort of every part of the industry, as Suze was explaining, you know, between the clients and um, agencies, you know, perhaps within client organizations themselves, as, as Suze just alluded to. Um, you know, you perhaps even have marketing executives who are incentivized to cut costs and buy cheap media without necessarily explaining to their superiors, you know, sort of the trade-offs there. Yeah. Um, and yeah, you know, straight through to, we talked about some of the Facebook, um, metrics problems. Um, do you think like this is the year maybe in kind of looking forward that like, as Sue's mentioned, CFOs, that people start to maybe get a little smarter about what's going on and kind of, I don't know, if you're a mark, if you're a CEO or CFO at a marketer and you're reading all these stories in the Wall Street Journal about all these issues, like, aren't you asking your CM? I mean, this has been going on for years, but maybe this is a year where they start to sort of ask more questions, get more serious about that. And that, that might have the effect that like Suze was talking about. Yeah, I think I agree. Um, again, you know, we've been writing about this stuff for years, but um, it does feel that 
this year it's sort of gone a little bit more mainstream perhaps um you know maybe partially you know Sue's alluded to the recent botnet that was discovered and you know huge numbers thrown around five million a day those are the types of numbers that when you read about it in the journal or in the times you know they catch the attention of your ceo or your cf right so yeah i think it does feel like it's you know sort of escalated the conversation somewhat yeah it's kind of like i mean we one of the other maybe big stories of this year or last year is like ad blocking and yeah. it, it's like that's one of the things that we write about a lot and we think about a lot and it's it's hard to actually get a sense maybe of how big or small the problem really is because i mean there one there isn't a ton of data out there um so you kind of have to rely on you know the the data that's that is out there and then just like this general feeling that like ad blocking is important and then they they, they kind of like i don't know they go away cuz then now like bots are the problem again and then you know it's like these sort of well, I mean, the fraud thing, again, Sue's brought this up, you know, this fraud issue has been around for years, and there isn't really a good sense of whether it's actually being cleaned up. Yeah. Um, and again, to your point, whether it's ad blocking or fraud, um, we're in a situation where the only people that have data on these things are also the people that are selling, uh, you know, software and services to help fix them. So, <laughs> yeah. Um, I don't, that's one thing that I find frustrating, sort of reporting on this space, is there isn't sort of objective, reliable yeah. data. Um, yeah, for sure. Um, one other thing that there's not, another big theme of the year, not objective, reliable data on necessarily is like the fake news phenomenon, which I think with, with like words like clickbait and other things went from being a topic that actually has a definition to just a catch-all term for like anything that you don't like is fake news. Um, so fake news has a branding problem? Yeah, fake, yeah, yes. Fake news has a branding problem like it, it probably needs, um, you know, some sort of advertising agency to like do a complete <laughs> rebranding. But yeah, so like this started uh, really after the election. Uh, Mark Zuckerberg said that it was crazy uh, that, there, you know, that um, the proliferation of basically just like bogus Facebook, bogus news stories that really permeated on Facebook which is influenced cr- the election. Which, by the way, <clears throat> let me just say, that's kind of a crazy thing to say, considering their whole business is advertising, which is influencing people, right. people's opinions and yeah. their decisions. It's like, do- Facebook doesn't influence people. Like, well, if you're an advertiser, that's like, oh, yeah. really? That's news to that's us. That's not what your salespeople are saying. Yeah, so, so but they, they backtracked. Now fake news is like, you know, they have a responsibility and they, they you know, introduced a, you know, a host of tools already pretty, pretty quickly to try and fight that. But I don't know, th- this is, this is, Again, not necessarily knew that there would be sort of false information on the internet. Um, but to what extent does Facebook and sort of, you know, platforms, does that, I don't know, does that make it worse or, or make it easier? Because there's no question that there's a lot of information, false information related to the election that spread on Facebook and and did have some sort of influence. Is that like in in a world where everyone is getting their news from sort of platforms as opposed to maybe more traditional means is this like a bigger problem going forward i don't know i i I suppose it comes back to your original point in that fake news is now being used to describe you know inaccurate reporting or viewpoints that you don't necessarily agree in Um, or like a traditional newspaper getting something like getting something wrong and they're issuing a correction it's like oh that's fake news it's like well that happens we both like had corrections before like that's kind of it happens so it's like there's Again, I, I find that so frustrating, the 
that fake I mean these things go from an actual issue an actual thing that people can debate to just like a meme in like zero to 60 is so fast now it's it's insane so let me ask you this though to what extent are we to blame we oh we're the, absolutely we're we being to, the media we are like yeah because to, you know the, the we're media, to blame for pretty much everything yeah, yeah you know the media made cer- certain assumptions about the election um Right. Which happened to be incorrect. And I feel like maybe people were looking for. Right. You're kind of looking for. They the want book. to understand why they why we got it wrong. And right. I so, feel like that kind of that's helped. True. But. And if you're I think as well, like if, if you're sort of a democratic political operative right now, you're kind of looking for how did we lose? And so then all these kind of explanations surface and some of them are easy to latch onto and and easier than others rather. And so it's like maybe it's it's easier to like kind of jump on a, a topic as opposed to having a more nuanced approach, which we always try to do here on the podcast. <laughs> um, all right. Another big story of the year that I wanted to talk about. We had Nick Denton on our podcast. It was like one of the first podcasts kind of in the middle of the Gawker. Yeah. when Was that April? Yeah, that was like, yeah, I think that was April. I think he was like our second guest. Um, and that was a really interesting podcast. You should go back and listen to it. But um, that ended with, you know, um, the end of Gawker as we know it, and Univision bought um, the rest of the Gawker media sites for $130 million. Um, Denton and the artist formerly known as Gawker ended up settling for $31 million with a former professional wrestler. The whole suit was secretly funded by Peter Thiel, the PayPal billionaire. So, like, there was a lot going on. It's been talked about a lot. But, like, now that the dust has settled a little bit, do you think um, one of the big topics was, like, that this would sort of have that Peter Thiel's involvement would have a chilling effect on the media and and sort of going up against powerful figures. Um, I don't know. What's your what's your take on, on that? Like, what do you think next year or in the future people, when they look back on Gawker or Hogan, like, will it have sort of a wider First Amendment effect or is this just sort of like a crazy thing that happened in 2016? <laughs> it's hard to say, but, I mean, one thing you do hear people saying a lot on social media is, you know, Gawker should have done this story or if Gorka was still around yeah you, do you know hear this that. is the type of thing that we would need them to weigh weigh in on um so i mean maybe that answers your question to a yeah. degree i mean it, it does feel like there's sort of been a, a bit of a vacuum left totally there. i mean also like as kind of like there's no one to do those in the weeds like strange media stories that maybe only a gawker would do um there is i mean that's like that does kind of – their absence is felt. I think that that's definitely the case. Yeah, although it's hard to say if it's felt more by, yeah. you know, us sort yeah. of scouring Twitter on a daily basis. That's true. I mean, and I think it probably remains to be seen, like, what First Amendment effect this will have. But I think it's – if you're a small – this is the thing. is like there aren't that many – Gawker was in a unique situation because there weren't there aren't that many small digital publications that aren't sort of – tied up with some legacy organization that could bankroll uh, an expensive suit. Like, they were uniquely positioned to lose to a deep-pocketed professional wrestler, I suppose. Yeah. But at the same time, if you are a small site or um, a publication that just doesn't want to necessarily risk it, I mean, maybe if you're a a lawyer at one of these places and you're looking at what happened to to Gawker, you're going to, like, maybe let's be more careful or, or not publish something that is true and newsworthy. And, like, so that... That chilling effect might exist. That's interesting, yeah. And I, and I feel like one thing that plays into that is sort of the ownership of yeah. Gawker in that, you know, a lot of media companies today are backed by, you know, big corporations right. at this point. 
or you know venture capitalists and those guys perhaps don't have an interest in rocking the boat too much yeah and, and to your point you know gorka was maybe uniquely positioned to do so yeah way. well we'll have to well nick if you're listening you know, come back next year and we'll see what you're up to um that, let's talk about um ad blocking yes um what's your view this feels like to an extent this has been sort of the year of ad blocking yeah. at least in uh, i think we mainstream wrote media didn't but, we we wrote like the ad blocking goes mainstream. Did we declare it the year I think, of ad blocking? Yeah, I think we did declare it like after it was like South Park. Maybe this was late last year or something. Yeah, but it it, it definitely ex- had a moment. It, it had was, a moment. Yeah, I think it was, it was like on South Park, yeah. and then um, John Oliver did a whole kind of advertising thing. So yeah, I I mean this is this is your expertise. I I think like as someone who sometimes enables an ad blocker, it, Steve. Uh, sorry, um, it, it's like obviously a utility that younger people use and it it it's a big problem if you're like a small especially if you're like a small publisher right i mean we saw a bunch of publications go to medium this year small publications and i want and i think some have even said explicitly like ad blocking is part of the re- they cannot make money uh you know from sort of traditional display like they used to and ad blocking only expedited their you know their need to kind of put their site on a platform and they don't have to worry about it as, as much. What's, what do you think? I don't know. I, I wonder to what extent it speaks to a broader theme of people just avoiding advertising, Yeah. Um, especially online because, you know, people don't like banner ads. No. Um, people don't like ads that track them. But then there was – we've had a bunch of people on this podcast say to our faces like – if advertising was good, people wouldn't block it. Or, like, it's just about making it good. I'm, like, super doubt, doubtful of that. Like, right, like, what does that even mean, right? People are going to avoid advertising if they can. Yeah. And, again, I mean, well, that's not an argument that's limited to digital advertising sure. either. You know, people have been skipping ad breaks on TV right. when and Just, where like, they go to the kitchen and... or the bathroom, you know, just – or DVR. Yeah, well, I guess related to that, I mean, so to sort of skirt some of these problems, a lot of companies are moving towards uh, sponsored content, branded yeah. content, branded entertainment, whatever you want to call it. Um, some of which, in my opinion, is is entertaining. Um, True. Uh, we talked so, about the, that video, Casey Neistat, who we've talked to before, yep. uh, did uh, with Samsung the other day. It was like him hanging onto a drone skiing now i remember we we work in media and advertising so we know that it was a samsung thing but is that sort of an example of yeah I advertising think that, that work branded content that works i think so you know i enjoy the the red bull videos and the gopro videos and, and yeah. that type of thing but we've talked about this before if you're selling fo- phones or sort of energy drinks or sports geared cameras that's one thing but if you're trying to sell people underwear and soap it's a how do you <laughs> How do you like do edgy branded content? That it's it's more challenging. I think maybe Dove has done a good job with that a little bit. I was like, going to say Dove is maybe one example of of a way to get around that. Like so- edgy soap. Edgy soap. <laughs> <laughs> well, toothpaste is the, is the example I always like to use. I mean, yeah. how do you create you know entertaining branded content about toothpaste? I yeah. don't know. I don't know. Yeah. Well, if honestly, if we could, then we'd probably be doing it. You know, yeah, true, is, true. Um, all right, one other big story of the year. We talk about it on the podcast quite a bit. Snapchat, the rise of Snapchat. Um, you know, they have, we've reported, you know, their plans to go public early next year. $25 billion is going to be a big deal. It's going to be like one of the, you know, obviously big marquee tech IPOs of the year. 
Um, so, like, what we've we've talked about it very much in the context of how media companies interact with it. I think, like, you know, I, I've written about recently, like, what some of the big advertising questions that are hanging over Snapchat. Can they really kind of build up an ad business? So this next year is going to be a real key year for them for a lot of different reasons. Um, what's your outlook on, on Snapchat? I mean, it's obviously a growing platform and one that it seems like media companies want to work with potentially because they want a, you know, a viable competitor to some of the other platforms. But do you think, I mean, do you think this is going to be, 2017 is going to be a really big year for, for Snapchat in, in some capacity? Or do you think, I mean, the, the counter argument people have made is like, is this sort of the next Twitter to you know, get out of the gate a little slow. Yeah, I mean, I think looking at it through sort of the media lens, it's a really interesting dynamic because, as you say, media companies are desperate to sort of access and speak to the audience that Snapchat has has amassed. Um, but I think the question is to what extent Snapchat is really serious about working with media companies. Um, you know, they haven't opened up the platform. There's how many publishers are on Snapchat? It's like, like 20, 20. I mean, seven or whatever it is. Yeah. Um, and again, you know, publishers are sort of sub- subjected to the algorithm tweaks or the design changes right. that these platforms make. And that's not just Snapchat, that's Facebook, that's everybody. Um, but we saw this year, Snapchat make a couple of tweaks that sort of pushed publishers further down the page. Right. And-, and that has like pretty big impact overnight. It's like, oh, we, we decided to put your friends here and the media content here on the app. And all of a sudden it's like, there's a Digiday story like... Traffic down thirty percent for yeah. publishers, so that that stuff really does have big reverberations. At the same time, like that's your, you know, that's their land, that you know, that's that's their right to to do that and make the user experience, you know, tailored to to what they think is best. That's very true. Yeah. Um, so yeah, that's my question. You know, just how are they going to work with the media industry? We we also reported this year that. Um, you know, they're, they're going to start sort of essentially licensing some content. Right. Um, it will be interesting to see what they do in, in sports, for example. Yeah, that, that'll be really interesting. I, they're doing some interesting stuff with, like, we both like soccer, like Premier League stuff. So, like, there's some global – it seems like it's – every time I look at Snapchat Discover, there's a ton more sports content than I feel like the previous time I looked. A lot of NF- – maybe that's just because it's, like, a busy time of year for the NFL, but that's but, a big push of theirs. Uh, but does that sort of does that suit the platform sort of that live element? I mean, I know they're doing a lot in like live music as well. Yeah, and just events generally. It, it feels events. like that's a good place for Snapchat. That's what's interesting is like if you're. I know that they're very successful media companies in terms of like the Cosmo said to get a ton of traffic and like makes sense for them. But it does seem like Snapchat is more interested or or maybe better suited for that sort of events. You know, uh, sports concerts things like that. Like. Where they can kind of curate stuff from maybe the the actual publisher that's there, the NFL fans, and they do this sort of mix and match thing, and the stories are like they're really fun to look at. And I wonder if that's a better use for Snapchat than like the sort of magazine rack that it started as when they launched Discover. So that'll be, and I think that's going to be uh, tough for some publishers to to reckon with maybe if they go that direction in true the and also you know this is the story that that twitter has been telling yeah for a few years and you know you made the potential comparison with twitter so it'll be interesting to yeah. see how it pans out for sure um all right well are there i guess maybe to wrap things up like are there um big themes that you're sort of looking at next year not to like you know give our competitors any heads up on the big <laughs> story they're gonna write but like what are some of the um 
What are some of the media themes that you think will kind of continue next year? Yeah, I think kind of more of the same. You know, as we were discussing with Suze, I think the measurement and transparency piece is going to be interesting. You know, to what extent a platform is going to be forced to sort of open the kimono to an extent. Um, and again, to Suze's point, ultimately it's it's marketers that are that are paying these platforms. That may be through agencies or yeah. through intermediaries, but. Um, if they sort of push really hard for more data or more accountability, uh, you know, it'll be interesting to see if these platforms are, are forced to give into that. Yeah. Um, for me, I think we talk about it. We ask every media executive kind of if they think the like great digital media shakeout is going to arrive. I think that was supposed to happen in 2015 and then 2016. And now it's supposed to happen in 2017. There's going to be some great digital media Shake I mean, out. could you argue that that has been happening? Yeah. With, yes, know, one could. NBCs of the world? And... No, it's true. I mean, and then, like, BuzzFeed took a essentially flat round. So it's like, oh, like, you know, there's some tremors, you know, in this sort of the digital media ecosystem. I don't know. I So I guess for me, one thing that I'm going to be looking at or, or thinking about is sort of what consolidation, not necessarily bad consolidation, you know, will we see uh, in digital media – what sort of investments, um, certainly if there are any, you know, IPOs or the BuzzFeeds devices of the world are always talked about in, in that regard. Um, and then it, what's going to happen to a bunch of mid-level publishers that are like pinned their dreams on Facebook video and, um, you know, what's going to happen to those kind of companies? Like, are they going to go under if Facebook video doesn't like monetize the way they hope so uh, that's what i'm i'm i think most interested in is sort of like uh what happens and and yeah to your point like the dominance of facebook and how that that might affect media companies so let, let me just ask you this in relation to sort of the the great shakeout um that's what we're going to call it that's is that yeah branded i branded so. it now yeah um a lot of these media companies were essentially venture funded yeah and the venture model is you know roughly you back 10 if one works out great right that's sort of priced in. Yes. Right. Um, so if nine fail, that's kind of that's priced so, in. Like, yeah. So if next year the great shakeout, ninety percent of digital media companies go under. It, I mean, is that a great? It's the shot? success of the VC model at work, or is that just venture capital? Like, yeah. I I I've had this conversation with some media executives too, who kind of criticize like the coverage of not our coverage, but um, of digital media in that regard that like people don't reporters maybe or as they talk about digital media they don't necessarily you know reconcile the fact that the vc model is is that so right if if we're talking about tech startups in the valley uh, i think people maybe approach it a little bit differently right. but for some reason because it's media writing about well, media it i think on. that there's that i also think that when you you're uh, if you're a media company you're by definition like consumer facing you're sort of out there so these you know these Companies that raise a lot of venture money that, you know, then who, who their CEOs come on things like the Media Mix podcast. They're out there um, true, true. and they're kind of beating the drum for why they get millennials more than anyone else. And their Facebook video views are through the chart, like, you know, just crazy off the charts. And, um, the, you know, so they kind of are bragging in a way that they get media in a way that maybe the traditional guys don't. And um, so I think this year, like, we are going to see some. Um, you know, some of them face, I don't know, like not necessarily going out of business or something like that, but like they're going to face their teenage years maybe. Like there's going to be some... <laughs> the Facebook video years? Yeah, they're going to like, they're going to be some awkward moments. Um, and I don't know, this analogy sort of breaks down. But um, yeah, that's sort of what I'll be looking at. 
Cool. Anything uh, Anything else? Any final thoughts? Uh, that's it, Steve. All Hopefully right. newspapers will still be around next Yeah, week. well, yes, that's right. So um, this is our last episode of the year. Thank you, everyone, for listening these past few months. It's been a lot of fun. And uh, have fun in England, Jack. Uh, I'll be here uh, just listening to old episodes at home and crying myself <laughs> to sleep um, until you get back. So uh, we'll be back in the new year, and uh, we're really excited for, for that. And thank you for listening. WSJ Podcasts. Listen ambitiously.